Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, January 29th, day 115 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borsell Dan here with diplomatic reporter Laser Behrman for an in-depth one-on-one. Hello, Laser. Good morning. Talks were held yesterday in Paris over a potential hostage deal, although significant gaps remain. Laser will tell us what we know so far. We're hearing more about the charges against the dozen UNRWA workers who were fired this week over potential cooperation in the October 7th Hamas massacres in Israel. Rumors are circulating that the White House is looking to hold up weapon supplies to Israel to pressure the country. All this and much, much more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. First, some headlines. In front of an audience of thousands of right-wing activists, 12 government ministers and 15 coalition lawmakers pledged yesterday night to rebuild Jewish-Israel settlements in the heart of the Gaza Strip. Rocket sirens sounded in Roshanikra and the Lebanon border this morning after two soldiers were hurt in a Hezbollah rocket attack. The IDF plans to bolster troop activity in northern Gaza in the coming weeks amid indications that Hamas is attempting to re-establish its military presence there. The army is also urging Gazan civilians in the western part of Gaza City to move south into central Gaza, indicating it plans to ratchet up military operations in the area. This morning, Iran executed four men at Dan after they were convicted of spying for Israel, according to Tehran's judiciary. Lazar, let's begin with what we know about ongoing talks to reach another hostage release deal. Last night, the prime minister's office confirmed that a four-way meeting between the U.S., Israel, Qatar, and Egypt did take place in, quote, Europe to discuss a potential deal to free all Israeli hostages held by Hamas in exchange for a two-month ceasefire. What else can you tell us? So these talks took place in Paris. Uh, They were very coy about them initially. Uh, French officials and Israel would not confirm that the talks were taking place, even though everyone seemed to know that that they were. Israel sent Mossad chief David Barnea, also the head of the Shin Bet Ronen Bar, and uh, Nitzan Alon, who was a former IDF general, he's he's now the IDF hostage envoy, to the talks. Um, These are the relevant parties. Obviously, the U.S., Qatar has established itself as the main mediator in Egypt with their connection to Hamas and obviously their longstanding ties with Israel. 
um, also a very important player. The attempt is to reach a major deal, the biggest hostage deal so far, which would ultimately see all Israeli hostages released. That would be in two waves. First, the women, uh, the elderly, and the wounded or sick. And then in the second wave would be men and um, IDF soldiers. Uh, Israel would agree in the first wave to, to halt operations for a month, and then would talk about the reaching the second stage, which would be another month-long halt, which would be a two-month stop in the war. Uh, the listeners can just imagine what would what that would do to allow Hamas to reconstitute, to redeploy, and there's no certainly no guarantee, in my opinion, that Israel can uh, restart the fighting afterward, given international pressure. Um, Israel, of course, would have to release a significant number of Palestinian uh, prisoners. Uh, the, the the list has not been made yet, since we're we're still way way too early in the process. But that would definitely be a part of it. So we're hearing from Israeli officials that there is some moderate progress, but that we shouldn't get too optimistic. That there's still a long way to go. Um, the the uh, Israeli coalition will be briefing the cabinet today, but uh, also the uh, prime minister's office said that talks will continue this week. I'm still trying to find out how exactly those talks will continue, whether they'll be uh, lower level representatives, whether they'll be in person on the phone, um, or maybe they'll be, everyone will fly to another location later this week. According to a report published late Sunday, employees of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees kidnapped Israelis, transported ammunition and the body of a dead soldier, and took part in a murderous assault on a kibbutz on October 7th. That is pretty damning, and a slew of countries have already stopped funding the agency. So first of all, Laser, do you know any more specifics of these cases? So there was a big New York Times report based on an Israeli dossier uh, that was given to the to the Americans. It seems like the Americans shared it with the New York Times, um, but it could have been the Israelis actually as well. Um, but that that was what the American government has received, and it seems to have been effective. So far, we know that uh, they can point at twelve uh, UN officials. Uh, or UN employees in the Gaza Strip who actively took part in the October 7th massacres. Like you said, there was one uh, who actively was involved in kidnapping an Israeli woman, passing out ammunition that was someone else, um, in different ways to support the attacks. Let's not forget, even though we're just talking about 12 people, there are many, many more who were acting in ways that, that were certainly uh, inappropriate for a UN employee that would certainly violate the rules that, is, that should show that this is an organization that probably isn't worthy of money coming from Western democracies. Uh, there was that, that uh, I believe it was a Slack channel uh, of, of UNRWA employees in which they were, uh, 3,000 employees in which they were celebrating the attacks and speaking positively about it. So this is a long-standing, long-standing problem with this agency. In general, the agency is a problem for Israel because it's the only agency dedicated to one refugee problem. And Israel, I think, rightly says that they perpetuate the problem. They're not there to resettle refugees, to find places in other countries or to find solutions. They keep refugees in dozens of camps around the region, including in Palestinian-controlled territories. The fact that there are refugee camps in territory in the West Bank and in Gaza of Palestinians is, is pretty crazy. And now we see that not only are they um, perpetuating the problem, they're actually involved in, uh, in, this, awful, uh, in this awful massacre. I, I spoke, when I was in Gaza about two weeks ago, I spoke with a brigade commander 
of the 646 Brigade, and he said he didn't see a single UNRWA school that didn't have weapons in it. Every single school they went into, they found weapons. They basically treat UNRWA schools as more hostile than any house. Like they know that that is going to be a hostile place that they have to watch out for from booby traps and weapons. Um, And I think that says a lot as well. UNRWA is saying that, listen, okay, we've opened an an investigation. We fired nine employees. We are the only organization that can continue to provide services for uh, 2 million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Israel seems to agree with that a bit because Israel has been cooperating with them as the only agency that can get aid there. Obviously, Israel has interest in making sure there's not a total humanitarian collapse in the Gaza Strip. But long term, we hear from Israeli officials that that UNRWA has to change drastically or has to go and they have to be replaced by a more uh, responsible and a less ideological organization whose job it is to take care of civilians and not to uh, promote this uh, harmful ideology and, of course, not to participate in attacks on Israeli civilians. In the meantime, several countries have cut the funding. I think it won't affect uh, operations in the near future, but were UNRWA to pull out Wouldn't Israel be on the hook, essentially, for providing this humanitarian aid in order not to get into more trouble with the genocide convention? Yeah, absolutely. It it would be hundreds of millions of dollars that Israel would be responsible for. That's why, as I said, uh, Israel is happy to have, not happy, but is willing to cooperate with UNRWA in the meantime. I think it's a long-term change that needs to take place, that another organization needs to be stood up with funding, but we can't do it immediately. We still have the whole UNRWA system in the Gaza Strip that knows how to get you know, some, some aid to, to, to where it needs to go. It obviously isn't able to reach the entire Gaza Strip right now, but this is a solution that takes some long-term planning. Israel obviously can't do it alone, but now that you have at least eight countries um, and some major funders as well, US, France, UK, Japan, that have pulled out of their funding, the idea is to say, okay, this is not something they can go back to. Let's try to find a different solution that can address what the real mission of of a UN agency should be. The IDF is well known for going into disaster areas, earthquakes and things of that nature, and putting up these pop-up hospitals and taking care of uh, communities in need. Do you think, you, Laser, do you think that if all of this money were funneled into the IDF, could the IDF take on this responsibility? Theoretically, it could. I don't think the IDF wants to. I mean, when it goes to these disaster zones, the IDF takes a certain uh, limited sector and it's not providing ongoing supplies for millions of people and it's certainly not running schools. Um, I think it would be an unnecessary burden on the IDF. And let's let's not forget this would be uh, toward a hostile population, which has a ton of Hamas supporters. And obviously Hamas isn't going to just disappear, even though some of their members might melt back into the civilian uh, milieu. It doesn't mean that they're gone. So I think it would be a a headache that there's really no reason for the IDF to take on. Uh, The IDF delegations that go abroad, again, are working with host governments and take on uh, limited rescue roles and are not taking on a you know chunk of land with, with a massive population like the Gaza Strip. For any who are wondering how Hamas continues to arm itself, according to a New York Times report yesterday, Hamas steals a significant number of its weapons from Israel and much of its material for explosives from IDF duds. So we've known about the theft for a long time, but the idea of the duds is really new to me. So how does that work? So the, the the issue of the duds, so this is IDF munitions, whether it's shells, uh, missiles, and the like that don't explode, 
Um, it's been known that that Hamas tries to cut them up and, and use the uh, very high quality military grade explosive to make uh, rockets. So a single uh, missile could be, provide enough material for, for hundreds of, of rockets. But the scope of it surprised Israel. Um, and the fact that there's one, there's one anonymous uh, official who said, Israeli official, who said that most of Hamas's rockets come from these duds, these misfires, which is surprising for sure. But if you think about it, Israel's firing some pretty heavy weaponry. Um, there's usually about a 10% misfire rate, so it lands, doesn't explode. But um, in the article, it talks about Israel still has a lot of older stores of munitions, certainly in, in artillery, and there's probably a higher misfire rate there, something like 15%, not exploding. There was an episode a couple of years ago, I think it was 2019, where Hamas was bragging about finding, I believe it was a World War I era, maybe World War II era, uh, British ship that ha still had uh, unexploded munitions on it, and they cut it up, and they, they said that they had turned it into uh, rockets to use against Israel, so... Um, that was certainly a, you know, it's certainly easier to use much more modern and, and, and advanced stuff that Israel's firing as well. I'm sure they are taking casualties as well as they, you know, try to saw it off. There could be explosions, but there's no question that that's a certainly a, an important uh, source of explosive material. And you also mentioned the um, the theft issue. You know, you can see plenty of types of weapons, uh, not only guns, but also shoulder-fired anti-tank, anti-aircraft missiles. S those were probably smuggled in from, you know, originally in China, Iran, but there's weapons that were taken from IDF bases. Uh, Hamas is not able to create, to make, you know, uh, guns that, that look like any other AK-47 or M M16 within Gaza. Those are certainly smuggled in or stolen, which is an ongoing problem. We'll go to a short break. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. U.S. President Joe Biden said yesterday that the United States will respond to a weekend attack that killed three U.S. service members in northeastern Jordan near the Syrian border. He said in a statement yesterday that the attack was attributed to, quote, radical Iran-backed militia groups, which is sparking an outcry from U.S. politicians to hit Iran. So that makes me kind of nervous. And I even reached out to you last night about this. And I'm wondering, is this the hit that will tip the region into all-out war. Is that cry to hit Iran really a serious cry, Laser? The cry is a serious cry. I don't think hitting Iran is going to tip the region into an all-out war. I don't think that's what Iran wants. And I, I don't think we're, we should be afraid of that right now. Um, but what is clear is that Iran is not afraid of the United States. It is continuing its policy of uh, using its proxy forces, of which there are many, so you think Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, obviously have been very active, and these Iranian 
uh, Iran-backed Shiite militias in, in Iraq and Syria. That's who was blamed for this attack. But Iran thinks, and <laughs> rightfully so, let's be honest, that if it uses one of these militias to strike and now kill American troops, that it itself is immune from strikes. And the, the last thing it wants is to be hit directly by the United States. That's what it is trying to stave off through all of its actions in the Middle East. It wants to drive America out of the Middle East. It wants to show that it's too, it can exact too high a price uh, if it is struck directly. But <laughs> we we can see that this, uh, it's not afraid and so, something has to change in the equation. That's why you're hearing these calls mostly from Republicans that something has to change here, but you're also hearing it a little bit from the Democratic side. But let's not forget, as I always say, there's elections coming up. I don't think Biden wants to have another Middle East war on his hands. The U.S. public doesn't have an appetite for it. But at the same time, he cannot open himself up to the idea of him being weak in the face of American enemies and encouraging them by that weakness. So he he's going to be under a pressure to he's under pressure to respond. I am fully confident that America is going to respond in a way that they haven't up till now. The question is whether it's going to be on Iranian assets and forces outside of Iran, which they have plenty of in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon, or whether they're going to uh, take that step and hit something inside of Iran. Again, I don't think that turns into World War III uh, because Iran knows that it would certainly uh, suffer badly in such a such a uh, development. Even as Biden is saying that the U.S. will respond, and he said at a time and place of their choosing, something to that effect. At the same time, Washington is reportedly weighing using weapon supplies as leverage to pressure Israel to reduce the intensity of its operations in the Gaza Strip. You wrote up a report about this yesterday. You'll note, though, that the IDF announced this morning that operations will be ramping up throughout the Strip. So, do you think this is coincidental? What do you make of this? Yeah, I think that the fact that IDF is increasing the operational tempo on parts of the Gaza Strip, I think, has to do with the situation on the ground. The fact that Hamas is reconstituting even its civil services in some places, um, and the understanding is that even though there's a lot of pressure to pull out forces, especially reservist forces, uh, you need a certain number of troops and a certain tempo of operations um, to keep this thing up. In terms of the what the U.S. administration is doing, uh, in December, so less than a month ago, uh, Secretary of State Blinken fast-tracked, he did this twice, he fast-tracked munitions to Israel, like the 155-millimeter artillery shells. And this, in the NBC, NBC News report, is exactly the type of munitions that the administration is thinking of using as leverage on Israel. What does the administration want? It wants Israel to uh, wind down the war a little bit and allow more humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip, maybe at some point allow some civilians to start returning home. I think that final one is certainly, you know, is, is a dream, a fantasy, I should say. He, if once civilians start returning home, Hamas goes with them, and Israel either has to kick them out again, or it's going to operate among civilians, and it's going to kill more civilians. So that is a pretty bad idea, in my opinion. There's nothing confirmed about this report, but it seems pretty well-sourced. And also the White House didn't uh, issue a denial. It issued a statement saying that uh, Israel's that America's policies have not changed. That doesn't mean they're not discussing some sort of change. So it's something to keep an eye on, but I think it would look uh, pretty bad for the Biden administration to be uh, putting pressure on Israel by withdrawing, withholding weapons they need to fight Hamas again in this election year. Um, but it shows that, that there's some real... Um, differences of opinion 
within the White House. I think Biden is the head of a small group that wants to keep firm support for Israel, but I think most of the White House, most of the administration uh, would like to see a change and a change that is not in Israel's favor. We, of course, hear rumors about his aides, Biden's aides, going on strike over the war and things of that nature. But do you think that Biden himself can be rocked? He seems very resolute in supporting Israel in this just war. Yeah, I think Biden himself is a friend of Israel, and you can see how the uh, October 7 attack affected him personally deeply in the way they talked about it. Um, and, and he's not someone that hides his feelings well. You can really see what he's feeling. But there are very senior people within the White House. I think Jake, Jake Sullivan certainly is is the strongest, uh, the most influential of his advisors that would like him to change direction. And let's not forget, he wants to be reelected. Uh, the First Lady wants him to be reelected. The party wants him to be reelected. I'm sure he's getting this pressure that why continue this level of support for Israel if it means we're, we're not going to be in power? You're going to jeopardize our job. I'm sure there are people who think that it's going to jeopardize the future of the country if you put that Donald Trump character, character back in the White House. The closer we get to the elections, the more the pressure will uh, be applied to him. And the question is whether how much he can withhold it. And, and uh, the deep Democratic Party, and the, there's a deep White House too, I think, that operates kind of independently of, of the president and just kind of runs... You know, on those general guidelines of the administration, uh, is certainly there. And the question is whether Biden will continue to to hold this particular issue uh, closely and will continue to dictate policy. But I think what we can say with confidence is that pressure will continue to go up. Israel has said that the war is going to continue throughout the year, and I think that's certainly true. Um, Biden's not looking great in polls. Most polls, he's behind Trump by a couple of points. So that equation means that pressure will continue to rise. And at some point, he might say, I need to start changing my policy on Israel in order to guarantee my re-election. Lazer, thank you so much for this uh, insight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's daily briefing. Please check out another episode tomorrow. This installment was produced by the Podwaves. If you have any questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>